The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by FreshBooks. Discover a super intuitive way to make creating and sending invoices for your business efficient and simple. Try it out for free for an entire month. Visit freshbooks.com slash candid and enter the candid frame in the how did you hear about section. FreshBooks, it's small business accounting software made just for you. This is X, and this is The Candid Frame. If you're a commercial photographer today, one of the questions you've been asked more frequently over the past 10 years is, do you do video? At first, it might have been easy to just say that you just do stills. But in a business where diversity can help lead to longevity, it's been helpful to many studios' bottom line to offer motion capture as part of their services. Granted, there's no shortage of challenges to be faced when making that choice. But there are many photographers who are finding ways to make motion capture a successful and profitable part of their business. Tony DeZeno has made a career in the commercial world as a photographer specializing in images of athletes, whether it's in the world of racing, climbing, or other sports. His professional and personal work has taken him all over the world. Today, he is not just a great photographer, but also an experienced producer and director of motion. We sat down to talk about how his experience in the world of stills have helped him to make the transition to a new and exciting phase in his career. I have sort of lost track with what you're doing, because I see you on Facebook. (laughs) And then you just recently, you know, told me that you're back going into multimedia work, and the, and that's kind of what I want to focus this conversation on. Yeah. But you know, it's been a long time. It's been years since I actually had you on the show, so I know it's kind of unfair to have to sort of abbreviate a lot of stuff <laughs> that's been happening since then. But why don't you catch me up? Because you were doing a bunch of automotive stuff. True. Um, yeah, we've known each other long enough now that you have interviews where we're at different phases of our career which is kind of nice so you know if if people want to go back and visit those interviews you can see it they're sort of uh, benchmarks for for our progress or our, our evolution but um yeah i mean in in short if you want to give a snapshot of the career being an art center grad and getting out and working uh, uh on sports propaganda with people like nike and adidas and and others um led me to a lot of that kind of uh high-end uh, top tier athlete stuff. And perhaps the notable thing about that was that on many occasions they do both the print and the motion campaigns in concert. And I would be on some backstage, you know, um, back lot around town here at one of the major studios. And, um, they'd bring in an A-list director to shoot the spot. Like say, um, uh, we've worked with, uh, to practice the tradition of shameless name dropping in Hollywood. Um, David Fincher and Michael Bay and Spike Lee and Spike Jones and, and these various, you know, wonderful directors whom 
were part of my continuing education in terms of always being um, passionate about cinema and motion and directing and looking at what they were doing. Um, so I didn't really know at that time that that might influence me or be part of you know my training for eventually moving from stills and into motion. Mm. But uh, that's that's definitely something I can look back on and say, yeah, it was was a huge benefit to be in that situation and watch directors work how they did things and and uh, with various size crews on location or in studio. Um, so starting out of school and, and assisting for some big Hollywood types and, um, and then transitioning into my own shooting, getting to travel a lot to do that um, on different adventures. The car thing, I'm an accidental car photographer because uh, where some people dedicate themselves purely to car advertising, which is sort of an alchemy of its own, you know, where people are into shooting sheet metal. I was always on the sports side. For example, one of my earliest passions as a kid was to fall in love with Grand Prix and Formula One and, and IndyCar racing. And so my way into car shooting was always through the sports side because almost all the major makes have at some point a high-end sports car in their line. And so it was almost uh, getting in through the back door or something like that. So what I was doing was atypical in that it was more reality-based or authentic in terms of are not using a great deal of pretense or constructing. You see a lot of car photographers will do things that are heavily rigged, motion rigged cameras and CGI complement in terms of their enhancement in post. And those things start to tend to look very much the same and generic because the same shooters are shooting the same cars from the same angles with the mm -hmm. same gear. And, and I was always uh, more of a purist in that sense, coming from more of a, a journalistic side. The, the transition from that into, you know, shooting more, more motion was really kind of following in the footsteps of people that I admired or, or people who uh, generationally, for example, coming out of Art Center, one of the guys I was looking up to um, was an Art Center grad named Jeff Swart, who did some time at Road and Track before he became sort of the high-end Porsche advertising guy. And then from there, he moved into motion. So I always had it, you know, some idea that there was a progression that you could move through the ranks. And if you had a an ambition to, not that you ever master anything, but if you are working towards a sort of competency at the highest level, that the progression into motion was there if you if you had the drive. And so I looked at Jeff's work, and, and um, he co-founded a magazine that I worked with, uh, Racer Magazine, which is a pictorial of motorsport here in this country that's um, sort of top tier. And so I always kept an eye on Jeff and, and um, even sought him out to show him my work and, and uh, share it with him for as you would to say a mentor if I sat at the master's feet and asked for his reaction to my work it was a way of checking in to see someone whose work I admired or respected what he would you know offer in terms mm -hmm. of critique and that's that's above and beyond a, being in school anymore it's just kind of still finding the best teachers you can find and so Jeff was one of those people the next generation after Jeff in, at Art Center since we're sitting here today, is a guy named Rick Graves. Rick was also a car photographer, a proper car photographer, but somebody I knew from running in the same circles at, at Racer, and he would do sort of their beauty studio shots of centerfolds of cars, since we had racing in common. And, and in fact, he taught here for a while, so we had not only the fact that we were alum and that he was an adjunct, but racing. So there's three layers of overlap in terms of uh, a sort of kinship or, or <laughs> fraternity. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was drawn to him. And at one point I was teaching a car class here at Art Center. 
and invited him to come in and he he did a demo for our class and and that started a friendship where I, I kept uh, looking at what he was doing and he was stepping into motion and doing webisodes and documentaries and so that was attractive to me and and at some point he he uh, said yeah come along we'll we'll do something together so I spent a good couple of years uh, working with Rick as a second camera guy and then eventually producing and, and acting as a DP for him on some shoots before going out on my own. You, you just said it, 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 uh, you found it attractive. But what about motion was it that you found attractive as, as opposed to what you'd been doing for years of stills? Well, there's the collaboration side of it. You know, it's, it's very difficult to do something entirely on your own uh, in motion. I mean, it's, it's possible. And, and certainly um, some people do it really well. I like the idea of, of being involved at the level where you're using, you know, a cohort of talented people on, on every level, whether it be, you know, for just what's that, the, the idea of communicating something that's um, more emotional, you know, and you're, you're drawing a story out of somebody. So there's this human interaction as an interview, for mm-hmm. example, and, and this, we're just setting it into the documentary frame, right? And certainly the experience you or I might have as a photographer meeting somebody and, and having that personal experience that might be involved in a portrait. I, I look at the interview as a sort of a more elaborate portrait, that it's, it's sort of the inside version of a portrait in terms of if you're meeting somebody, do you admire them? Or, you know, what's your curiosity about them? Are you trying to draw something out of them? So they, the people have always been a big draw for me in, in the motion work. With a lot of the work that you've you've done, you know, you've you've worked as part of a team. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're the photographer, you're working with the producer, you have your assistants, you have all these people for a still shoot. When you're doing motion, you're dealing with more. You're dealing with a cameraman, a sound person, maybe a gaffer. You know, yeah. But beyond, you know, the actual staffing of it, mm-hmm. how is that different in terms of? Because with both, you're still collaborating. Mm-hmm. So is it just the fact that you're dealing with more people and just, you know, there, there are more gears in the machine? It, wh- what do you sort of see as sort of the defining thing that differentiates the, the two is uh, just a matter of practice? Yeah, there are more people involved. And, and certainly it's true that um, the, the interpersonal action of how you coach people and, and um, get them excited about doing their best and practicing a certain kind of um, respect for each person involved down to the the lowest PA who's got to walk in, he's holding traffic up so you can get the shot you need. I mean, everybody's important. There's something really satisfying about getting to sit with the editor, for example, and in post, really having your say as to what you'd like to see realized. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really satisfying in a way. When you're a photographer and working in more of a uh, individual capacity, you have that satisfaction. There's no question. But there's there's something that extends that vision when you're involved with, for example, an editor, which is not my expertise. And I sit with a master editor and I have an idea in mind for a sequence of how it should go. And because I'm sitting there as an equal with respect to this fellow, uh, I work with two or three guys that each have a different specialty, right? So if I'm sitting there with my man, Damien, and Damien um, offers me an idea, and it's not my idea, I always hold myself and wait, even though if I'm perfectly sure of what I want, mm-hmm. that I'll put that on hold for a moment because I have so much respect for Damien's own ability to raise the game from a different side of the table that inevitably what he shows me is almost always a way to elevate the game. And and so there, therefore it comes 
it goes higher than what I can do by myself. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain recognition that at some point I'm surrounding myself with people and every single person I surround myself with is (laughs) more talented or has a, a, a something special that I don't have that working together then raises the work up. And that's kind of impressive because if I'm already working at a high level in my stills work, then there's a satisfaction with that. But, but if, if there's a frontier that I'm crossing a new boundary into in motion, then it's, it's kind of like this unknown frontier. Mm-hmm. How far can we go with, with what we have to work with? That's, that's really exciting because it's, it's more than what I think it is. But when you've been working a certain way for the longest time, mm-hmm. making that transition can be kind of awkward, mm-hmm. if not a little difficult, because to some extent you're sort of surrendering you know, a little bit of control than you when then you're taking an individual still shot where you're yeah. completely in control. So can you give me sort of an, an example? Yeah, I'll or, give you a perfect example because you've reminded me. For example, if I have three or four cameramen, depending on the complexity of the shoot, and uh, we're in the field, you write about surrender and that I have to actually let go the camera. Uh, first of all, I can't be on four cameras at once. And rarely can I walk around and pre-approve all four cameras simultaneously, especially if we're working quickly. Mm-hmm. So the thing I have to surrender is, I, I think I'm pretty good behind the camera. In fact, that's one of the things that I'm bringing as a strength. But if I hold on to that, right, and I don't trust each cameraman to be at their very best, to frame the thing beautifully, to follow the action, to create something perhaps that is even above and beyond what I would have done, then I'm going to be really insecure that, you know, that these cameramen aren't seeing what I see. Mm -hmm. So in surrendering that, you're talking about the thing that's different. I walk onto a set and maybe for the first time I won't have a camera on me and I won't be shooting through the camera, but I'm delegating and trusting that each one of these cameramen are doing at least what I would do, if not more than what I would do through the lens. And when you have that in terms of the talent pool that you've put together, which is called producing you're producing well because you're putting the right people on the job then you can let go of that entirely and then the reward is that they come back with things that just are are you know mind-blowing that i had a certain vision and then they raise that and that's Mm -hmm. that's the transition from having this sort of attachment to wanting to do things my way and doing them my way and then surrendering to the possibilities that each of these talented people can then actually add to this mix without my having to micromanage or, or intervene, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably the best example I can give you of, of surrendering the control, the previous control yeah. of, of that kind of uh, management. Well, in my experience, it's always been that you have to have a real clear vision in terms of what you want and to be able to adequately communicate that with others. Mm-hmm. Um, with photography, I don't know if the entire team needs to have a real clear understanding of the vision, but I think it's, it's especially important that with motion that it is. Yeah. So with respect to, to that, did, did you did you find that there were certain sort of things that you had to do differently, that you had to yeah. exercise certain different skill sets in order yes. to achieve that? Yeah, I think the biggest difference, uh, the biggest difference for me is the in the pre-production we do a, an enormous amount of visual research, which requires discipline, right? So if, for example, we did a, a treatment for the Sonora Rally in Mexico through the dunes, and um, it's a four-day event, it's an off-road race. And in our visual research, we touched on the cultural touchstones of, um, uh, for example, bullfighting in, in Mexico. And when that project wasn't greenlit, my team and I decided we still had to go. 
and do this for ourselves because all of us wanted to do to to see and to learn about bullfighting. Then we did an additional treatment just on the depth of what is this going to look like for us. So we sampled the best photography we could find anywhere of the portraits of matadors and the, all the people involved in the cuadrilla and the landscape. What's that look like? And what are the you know the cultural things that would influence even our color palette? Mm. And and that's sort of a map, right? That provides everyone on the team, you know, a basis for like what the touchstone is for us visually and even what the ambition is for us to capture when we go out there for the portraits, the action that's obvious and, and the, all those, that connective tissue in between. Uh, so I would say the discipline of uh, visual research and providing uh, a treatment, you know, as a vision is the key to pulling in the like-minded talent that you've, you've got around you mm-hmm. so they just don't leave it to chance. So that's, that's different than say, you or or I on the street flying by the seat of our pants and trusting our reflexes yeah. and and being really intuitive, which is great. But when you're you're dealing with more people involved in a subject in like this one, in in the case of the sacred and profane subject of bullfighting, you want people in focused on the same kind of uh, vision and goal. I saw the footage that you guys shot down there, which is beautiful. Thank you. Um, beautiful. How many days did you have to, to shoot shoot that? That's just one day. That's that's the only day we were there. And we um, went into Mexicali the the night before, and they did sort of a tune up. It's like it's like a rock star tour. The same entourage mm-hmm. of fighters go from place to place, and they did a tune up in Mexicali. So we our first bullfight was actually the night before our shoot, and we went as spectators just to see the format and and look at the rhythm of how this thing would proceed. So we'd have some clue going into our own shoot the following day, where we had better access to you know to be up close and this kind of thing and it was it was gobsmacking i mean um from the first moment you know it was wild and crazy and out of control and and there's a lot of emotions in it in fact it's it's one of the more spectacular things i've ever seen in my life and you know we've been around the world a couple times but um it it didn't disappoint it was complex and emotional and and something that's really fascinating on both sides of the issue because everyone i've shared the work with has been moved one way or the other you know i've had mentors and friends say well i can't i can't watch it it's too too violent a subject and this is the same piece you saw which shows Mm -hmm. no violence but you know people are moved by it and that tells me that there's you know it's a worthy subject of attention to to invite the most elegant voices from both sides the anti-cruelty and the purist who think that tradition has something meaningful the idea is to use this as a proposal for a feature length doc and so we're working on that with now with having authored our own stills and video on the same subject so that when we make a treatment it's all of our work the proof of concept was yeah. you know accomplished well we've been talking mostly about documentary but you've also been doing commission work so how is that differently how is that different from the more documentary side of, of, of things well it's a matter of freedom i think that um, you know if we're working with an agency like um, a global agency like Saatchi and Saatchi and we're shooting Toyota trucks. You know, there's an endless amount of meetings in the pre-pro to establish essentially every frame on a storyboard. And so that, that freedom of movement is, is limited in terms of what your uh, spontaneous, you know, creativity can allow. So it's a much bigger machine with more people involved. I'll give you an example. Our first pre-pro meeting at Saatchi, which is here in L.A., and there were perhaps uh, 12 people sitting around the table and they're all from the agency, but they didn't know each other. So it's kind of crazy that the agency is working on the same client, same campaign, but there's so many people involved that they had to introduce 
people at the same agency to each other before we could start. Mm. So that told me some, you know, that some of the character of anonymity involved when you're in such a big machine. So documentaries, on the other hand, are, are much more intimate. And it's usually, I would say, more likely that it's a grassroots effort. So it's kind of the other end of the spectrum in terms of what freedom of movement you have uh, to improvise or to change or to redirect. So, you know, they're both satisfying in that you accomplish something bigger than you can by your own self. But it's, it's more of a, you know, at, at any agency, uh, more political and, and more dramatic in terms of the personas involved yeah. than it is, you know, just, just dealing with uh, something that's m- perhaps uh, more modest. Editing for a committee, I, I, I've found to be probably one of the more challenging things I've ever had to do. And that's being generous. <laughs> so how do you sort of contend with that? Because it's not just that you're satisfying, satisfying a singular client. Mm-hmm. You know, you, if you're editing a piece, mm-hmm. every aspect of that piece, whether it runs for two minutes or whether it runs for yeah. 20 minutes, is well, going to be subject to a bunch of different perspectives and opinions. Yeah, there's, there's a limit to everything, which includes the time you have to finish something. And, and in that, let's say if you have a delivery date for, um, for example, we did a, the launch of a new truck for Toyota that was a 2016 um, truck. And it's, it has to be ready to be shown at the premiere where they actually unveil the car to the world. So you know that's a drop-dead deadline. Mm-hmm. So if you have two weeks or three weeks from the finishing of the shoot and you have visual effects to add, which we did, we shot a truck to mask it uh, as if it was invisible. So imagine shooting a truck that's not there. I'll send you that. It's really cool. But obviously there's complex things to be put into place and to finish and you can refine and re-refine. And then there's the notes, as you say, from the committee and there has to be a limit on the number of revisions you can't constantly go back endlessly um, there's just not enough time to do it and ultimately not enough budget to pay the people to refine mm-hmm. uh, refine and, and review the notes so so you have to kind of establish that up front in terms of what's actually viable and if you establish that clearly then people know you get three revisions maximum and then we're done because we're out of time that's that's just setting the table for success that's you know, knowing that you're not putting yourself into a vulnerable position of overpromising mm-hmm. and allowing that, you know, if they have a committee of people who keep coming and coming late to the table, uh, that's when it gets, you know, kind of out of control. So to establish the ground rules up front is part of those early meetings as to what uh, we can promise. And, and the mantra might be, you know, we, we deliberately underpromise and overdeliver so that the satisfaction is built into this situation as opposed to the other way around where people might, you know, at their own peril, overpromise and underdeliver on that, yeah. that, that kind of thing. How important is it to have uh, sort of establish a point person on their end in which to communicate like the changes and the notes? Because sometimes I've contended with people who will contribute stuff just because they want to feel like I feel like they just want to be able to say that they're the one who suggested this. Yeah, you definitely, you named an advocate, somebody who first knows and respects your work, then then you're sort of past uh, an enormous obstacle already because you have mutual respect. And if that advocate is, say, um, your producer or an account exec or an art director, either way, that person can speak for you in a situation where you're not present. And you get a sort of a reality check on both sides. Now, that takes somebody with the ability to stand up to perhaps a boss or a superior and tell them like it is. 
And that's the kind of person you're looking for, a person of integrity, someone that, uh, you know, there's no question about the trust and that they won't throw you under the bus. Yeah, the person-to-person relationship is, is key to keeping things grounded in reality. And, and I hear you. You know, there's, there's always going to be moments of people being self-important. You can almost uh, feel it coming when that, that kind of last-minute ad you know, where somebody kicks in something and, and they want to be significantly involved in the project and perhaps show that their hand was involved in the project. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you develop a certain um, diplomacy in terms of how you handle anything. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is, uh, can you make this change? And that, you know, it might be a radical change. And so my answer in the positive is always, yes, we can make that change. Uh, who's going to pay for it? Because it's going to cost this much. And that almost always quells the unnecessary uh, kind of criticisms or changes that when people are kind of just you know, throwing their weight around. Mm -hmm. So if they end up being responsible for an expensive change, they better be really sure that that's what they want. (laughs) And that, that is what I'm saying is just keeping people honest, you know, and, and, uh, and being positive that, yeah, we could, we could make a radical change as long as it's paid for and it takes this much more time. And, and, and that's just, uh, you know, reflecting honestly what, what's possible, Mm -hmm. you know? Whether you are a full-time photographer making a living behind the camera or a devoted enthusiast earning enough to help pay for the hobby itself, you know the importance of being organized, especially when finances are involved. It doesn't matter whether you're a full-time or part-time photographer, you want to be on top of your finances. So for anyone making any money from their photography, it's important to manage your money and your business in a way that's both efficient and consistent. FreshBooks gives you just that. Sending estimates and invoices couldn't be made any easier and can happen as quickly as 30 seconds. But most importantly, it's a complete system that provides you the means for your clients to pay you online so you get your money that much sooner. Discover how FreshBooks can help you to handle cash flow, expense management, time tracking, and so much more by taking advantage of their month-long free trial. No credit card is required. Visit freshbooks.com forward slash candid and enter the candid frame in the how did you hear about section. Freshbooks, it's small business accounting software made just for you. Tell me about the the editing process. I mean, you, you spoke earlier about the importance of having someone who's much better at it than you are yeah. and it has a certain skill set but you know that that is in itself another sort of collaboration yes probably the most intimate collaboration when it comes to multimedia it is it's really satisfying in that I work with three different editors each with their own specialty one's more of a visual effects guy like Damien Richard who's uh, a musician and so he has a sense of rhythm and verse mm-hmm. and so that kind of thing plays well uh, in terms of editing and and so depending on who we're working with, the shorthand you develop is sometimes to the point of being nonverbal. I mean, it might be a grunt, like, oh, <laughs> you know, something that's just like positive for approval or ugh, like, no. And, and so I find that the more deeply we work with very nuanced and subtle stuff, because they're looking at single frames. I mean, you know, talking about exacting, you know, art. These guys will count down to single frames to get it right because they might be even more perfectionist than I am Mm -hmm. in their own right. So if you can develop that shorthand, you spend a lot less time explaining what your reasoning is or what your thought process is to arrive at a result. 
And then you start to feel each other, literally, like it's all almost all between the lines. And that takes, it's, it's just a playful thing where you're, you know, you're playing with somebody and they're starting to get the rhythm of what you're doing visually. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, if we start from a dialogue or a monologue and there's any, uh, anybody talking, well, like we're talking now for 45 minutes. If we were to actually turn this into a video and work in post, I might take a 30, 40 minutes that we talked and reduce it to three minutes of, you know, the most precious, you know, pearls of wisdom. So I might start with the timeline that I'm putting together from the transcript. So as the director, mm-hmm. I'm sitting by myself before I go see the editor and I'm pulling these lines because they're powerful to me and I put them in a, a timeline not caring what the visual looked like at the time, but for the message I'm constructing or the, the kind of story I'm telling. And that's one way to sort of set the, the skeleton of the story up and then fleshing it out, you know, with B-roll and, and other things that the editor can complement. Yeah. So that's maybe that's one way of doing it is to set this sort of timeline. And I can do that. I mean, I have enough, you know, basic skills to do this in a way that doesn't dismantle the project. Right. And so it's it's kind of, again, putting something into my editor's hands, his his able hands mm-hmm. that we build on from there. So that's that's where writing comes in, listening really well and feeling the nuances and seeing where. If I approach the same subject three times in this conversation and I got it one third right each time, you could put those three things together with concise edit and really make it a powerful, holistic statement. Yeah. Right. So there's there's that aspect, which is coming at it sort of from a a literary, you know, listening, transcribing and then reconstructing. You know, you make a really interesting point about the, the fact that the spine of a documentary piece can be a direct result of the conversation that you've had. But you're also dealing with this being a visual piece. So you have all these sort of sort of disparate elements that are all sort of connected to each other, but that have to be brought together within the context of the, the timeline. And, and sometimes it's like you have, like you said, the spine that you've sort of built from the conversation, but then you have to think about the imagery that will accompany that. And sometimes you may not have it, or you <laughs> know that you need to shoot it. Yeah. And, you know, it just... Yeah. Well, that's that's part of the research thing is that if if I can get if I'm driving towards a storyline that I don't know much about, I I would prefer to do the interview type stuff as discovery early on to see what I'm what treasure I might uncover. Where can I go look for that treasure? Do I get like Indiana Jones? I get some clues. It's behind the temple, you know, under the dust covered floor. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, in those conversations where somebody's revealing to me things I don't know. And believe me, I'm almost always in that position to be the person who doesn't know. I'm the new person or the new guy discovering. And so I, I really like doing the interviews up front because it leads to the visuals, whether it's B-roll or, you know, establishing shots. And and, uh, and then your map is even clearer mm. then on where to go, what to do. So what skills that you had as a photographer beyond being able to see things visually mm-hmm. really help you when it comes to being able to do motion capture? Well, I think it helps that, like you, when you're on the street and, and it's spontaneous, you're, you're intuitive, you're reacting to things. Um, there's even a sense of action in the street. There's peak moments of, of uh, things happening. So for me, coming from sports and, and uh, this kind of thing, I think that there's a reflex you have about uh, anticipating what's going to happen or, or pre-visualizing it so you're in the right position to get the maximum out of it, whether it's be a, a beautiful frame or perhaps most importantly, a sense of movement with the camera as the viewer. So it's not just POV 
you know, like um, we've seen done to death with GoPros kind of stuff on mm-hmm. all these action athletes, but rather the camera being used as a character to show you what to look at and when to look at it and even how you reveal. For example, in the last year, I've been flying a drone, which we took on as a matter of chasing a rally car for Toyota around the country. And that's just, that you talk about a whole new world. The difference psychologically between chasing a car going down the road or pulling back and seeing more and more and more of the environment revealed as you go backwards. I mean, those are two very different shots psychologically or, or visually. And so choosing when that makes the most sense or has the most powerful effect becomes part of your repertoire. So uh, again, that's sort of action driven, mm-hmm. but, but being sensitive to it, right? That the character of the camera now becomes important as to not only where you're standing, but what movement's involved and, and starting to draw on, you know, people's work that you admire. Like, why is Emmanuel Lubezki, you know, an Oscar winner three years in a row for cinematography? He's doing something so far and above and beyond what everybody else is doing that it pays to look at it and pays to study it and pays to, you know, yeah. really understand that the, his character in the camera is so powerful it's it's a game changer. It's like a whole new territory. Yeah, his, his work I just I just love, and I think what's interesting about his work, and you sort of identified it, is this uh, this idea that his camera has a personality. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of other people practice a certain technique, like the use of the drone or the mm-hmm. use of an anamorphic lens or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? And you go, oh yeah, the person is using the lens in this way because other people have done it in that way. Mm-hmm. But he and some other photographers and cinematographers are able to take that technique and they somehow personalize it yeah. and make it their own. No, it's brilliant. So, uh, I, I've written him a fan letter because I have to practice what I preach. So in class, I'll, I'll typically tell students, who are you looking at? You know, And, and to give me your top 10 list of, of people you respect and admire who are rocking your world. And Almost always they bring me people I don't know and haven't heard of. And, and guess what? You know, they take me to school on who, who's really working for them and inspiring them. And then, you know, for myself, people like Lubeski, for example, and, and his work with Terrence Malick, you know, that's auteur directors and poets. And mm-hmm. this, this is just so rich visually that, um, you know, I'll tell people, oh, you, you know, you like, uh, uh, let's see who comes to mind. Uh, Tim Burton, for example, will come up and I'll say, well, have you reached out to him? Have you written him a, an email or? Anything like that, to, you know, not that you know he'll answer you back, but have you even attempted to recognize that something he did was was Im- impressive to you? And, and, and most times the students haven't thought about that. So in order for me to, to, to ask them to do something, I have to be able to do the same thing myself or I'm, I'm just a hypocrite. So, so you know, uh, I wrote Lubezki and, and uh, looked him up on IMDb and found he's with William Morris and so forth and, and sent off. Now, now, how far that letter gets, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's beside the point. To me, it's the matter of practice that I'm recognizing something that's sort of really honest and beautiful to me, that it reinforces that sensibility when I'm directing or if I'm behind a camera. I gravitate towards that thing because it's like, recognition of that frame mm-hmm. right and it's like <laughs> locking in on the lubesky treatment like why is that effective it's almost sublime it's like subconscious you know there's a shot in the revenant where the camera's tilted sideways as you, you fall to the ground with the caprio 
and he's breathing into the lens and it's fogging up because it's so cold. And so obviously it's a camera, but it's as if you are there with him, you know, in that intimate moment. So you, <laughs> it couldn't be more personal mm-hmm. as far as viewing in a, the- a theater seat. Let's talk a little bit about budgets because I know mm-hmm. with, you know, the introduction of the DSLR as a video capture device, mm-hmm. you know, the big question is, Oh, do you shoot video? Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent, some people sort of dabble with it. Some yeah. people sort of make the leap. Yeah. Um, but when you start talking about productions on the level that you, that you are practicing, uh, talk to me about being able to set budgets and specifically the idea of having a, a producer. Well, the question has been part of the, the change in the business, you know, with, with certainly in social media platforms, clients have on the higher end of advertising come to expect BTS, meaning behind the scenes kind of making of videos as a matter of a compliment. So, you know, early on, I may have been asked about something like that when I was only shooting the stills and another director was shooting the principal photography in terms of the video capture motion. And, uh, obviously, the correct answer is yes. When the, the the need is there for the client and you might have to change your approach to do something, you want to see, well, at what level can I deliver? And uh, so it might actually be from a still side first is, is, you know, has been my experience that you're invited to. Do you have the ability to shoot video? Well, I said yes before I'd ever shot anything. And that's a matter of, of being of service and being capable and then going out and doing the research to find the people who can support that and make it happen. So yeah, the DSLR thing is, um, you know, for example, Canon's uh, foray into the business kind of launched big time when Gail Tattersall shot the last final episode of the season for House. Um, and the storyline uh, begged for uh, a camera that could give you the kind of POVs and I think it was an earthquake collapse building kind of right. thing. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, he did this with uh, early on and basically changed the game in Hollywood in terms of what people thought they could do and, and for what budgets. So the DSLR arrived, and, and Canon asked him to, to launch a workshop to, to do masterclass type stuff on that. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to help uh, establish that workshop with him. And, and so it wasn't as though um, it, this was my expertise. I was certainly learning as I was going with him. And so it was a privilege to be in that situation where the at the moment this was... Uh, a key happening and DSLRs were being employed at the highest level. And, and I basically got to sit uh, and take copious notes as I helped set up the workshop. So it was another example of continuing education. I know you're asking about budget. So uh, the budget is always what's possible. What have they spent before? It's, it's um, at the agency level, it's a matter of finding out what the previous practice was. What was the budget for the same thing earlier? Well, in this case, there might not have been earlier. Uh, examples of this and it's it's the first time so then trying to value that with respect to our own peers and colleagues so we don't undercut and there's there is the tension between the actually established principal film crew or production company and the stills guy who's now verging the border and maybe crossing the border into motion so that's an interesting conversation in itself how you are accepted within the circle of principal filmmakers as a stills guy and whether or not you're you're working on a level that's if not on the same budget at least uh at the same level of respect in terms of importance for the given job so how can we uh answer that best for you well in terms of working up with the producer because i know that's something that uh uh, we've talked about in the past probably not on mic but 
it's the producer that can for, for, for photographers who are out there who are venturing into that and start considering uh, you know doing this kind of work themselves at least I've learned so sometimes mm-hmm. delegation mm-hmm. is probably the best business decision that I can make absolutely because I am not the best in terms of negotiating and figuring <laughs> out budget so it's like let me defer to well, somebody else. exactly it's okay to be the artist involved and and let a producer who's fluent so how do you how do you come to choose someone to help you to produce a motion motion capture as opposed to doing stuff with yeah stills. well they have to be well versed and experienced and and uh and fluent as i was saying fluent in in the vocabulary for filmmaking so that nothing's lost in translation from client to artist if you're if you're the director of any video shoot then that producer becomes the key element to having the right budget to start with for example you know how complex is the shoot how many cameras do you need how much time do you have and establishing all the right talent it's like team building and and Choosing the the producer is is a, a bit of a courtship. I mean, there has to be attraction in terms of subject matter would help, and even like I said earlier, the the mutual respect for the work. If they understand your work, then they uh, it's implied that there's method to the madness of how you work, how you get what you get, and if that's there, then then there's no need to argue about how you go about things because they see the deliberate method of what you're doing to get what you need. Mm. So. That means, it, for example, if we're talking about photographers who are moving into motion, still shooters who are do, wanting to move into motion, the best thing I could offer is is uh, self-assignment. Because if you're starting to, to be attracted to certain subjects, long before somebody's going to hire you to do that, you should hire yourself and say, well, I'm going to do a, a little discovery piece and self-assign and shoot it the way I want to shoot it without any interference. So that when you actually show the thing, on your website or on social media, that it, the, the rule of thumb is that you always get what you show. If you show the thing that you've done the way you want to do it on the subject that you already love, then you're set up for a pretty good recipe for the recognition of this is how that person works. Hmm. As opposed to submitting yourself to a client who may or may not have uh, an artistic vision that you ascribe to or a sensibility that you relate to. The, tr- the temptation is to take the first thing that comes, but then you might be under the yoke of someone directing you visually and, and in other ways that um, doesn't reflect your, your sensibilities. And then it's hard to tell who you are or what you do. So that kind of self-assignment, putting a, a group together of cameramen who have the same kind of things in mind. You know, for me, it's pretty easy because, you know, if I got a sense of adventure, I've got um, a waterman surfer guy uh, as one young Jedi cameraman. I've got a rock climber. I've got an aviation geek. All these guys are all tied into this matrix of uh, the same kind of passion for image making. Mm-hmm. So if you can find that kind of cohort and build on that as a group, you've essentially started a production company. And that's key to your being able to say to any client, my team meaning you have people, and those people are uh, already integral to how you work and, and to your own vision. So even if it's just DSLRs and, and GoPros and, and a modest drone, you can put together something very cinematic. Start to indicate to other people what you want to do, how you want to do it, what it looks like. Yeah. You know, what, uh, part of our initial conversation, you told the story of a monk who observed you uh, <laughs> taking pictures, and that after observing you for a period of time, he you know, came up to you and said, Oh, now I understand. <laughs> this taking of pictures is your meditative practice. Yes. Is there something un- analogous to what you're doing in motion that is some aspect of it that is very similar to that? 
Well, it's it is a practice. Like a monk meditating, they they are always deliberating on what's important and throwing out the stuff that's not. I think that's still a really good mantra. It's really good practice to take in what's what's useful and discard everything else. You know, Jim Jarmusch is an indie filmmaker who um, I always bring up because he had the audacity to write the five golden rules of filmmaking. And the first rule is there's no rules. There's no one way to do anything. And if you start from there, you see just how open it is. There's a medium. It's the highest uh, art form as far as I'm concerned because you're talking about the power of, of photographs in cinema, the the element of writing, you know, if there's any dialogue, the um, camera movement, obviously, um, music, very powerful. All these all these arts combined sort of elevate that to a, a transcendent place when it's working best, right? When somebody comes to you like a client can, and and they turn, start to dictate certain methods or certain, like even the camera, you know, it's like, well, you know, it's worth asking why they're dictating certain ways of doing things. So Jarmusch says that if, um, that if that if people tell you there is only one way to do something their way, that you should uh, not walk but run <laughs> away as fast as possible. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, I think that's good advice. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is mm-hmm. I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered, and if so, why? Well, um, I guess... Nowadays, I'm looking at photographers who are moving into motion. Somebody I've known for 20 years, and we have a, a, a friendship based on mutual respect, is Andy Anderson, who was a former Air Force guy, firefighter in the Air Force, turned photographer. And, and he and I both worked at Men's Journal Adventure as still photographers for them at different times. And we were aware of each other and kept track of each other. And, and, and um, just recently, we've, we've uh, looked at doing motion together because he's stepping into motion for the first time. And he's brilliant. I mean, he just did a 400-page book for Rizzoli on the Beretta handmade guns in Italy, you know, the, mm-hmm. the shotguns. And, and um, that's a 500-year anniversary for that company. So you talk about a commission that's sort of a dream project. He um, traveled the world doing, you know, these, these um, hunters. And um, it tells you he lives up in Ketchum, Idaho, and, and is sort of a Hemingway-looking character anyway. Just the fact that, again, practicing what I preach and reaching out to him and, and telling him that I admired his work has sort of opened up the possibilities of not only uh, a good friendship, but, but actually working together and doing a motion piece. So we've, we've got a couple things in development between smoke jumpers up, uh, you know, firefighters who parachute into places and, and various other things. But, um, yeah, so I would say if people don't know Andy's work, they should be looking at it because he's, he's something special. Very cool. Well, Tony? Thank you, as always. Pleasure. Thanks to Tony DeZeno for taking the time to appear on The Candid Frame again. You can listen to our first interview with Tony back in episode 47. Remember that you can and do play a big role in introducing others to the work that we do here at TCF. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more, or anything in between on a monthly basis, and help make a big difference to the work we do here at TCF. Visit patreon.com forward slash thecandidframe, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. 
The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.